half of the first season of the Say No KNOW.org podcast. This is the place where we have been discussing everything drug related from policy, crime, research. We talk about what's going on on the streets, we talk about what's going on in the universities and the research areas, and uh, we talk to people with lived experience and we discuss ideas on how we can make things just a bit better. We receive funding for this podcast from the Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse. You can check out the great work that they are doing at chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed in our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members, and the views also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization that I'm associated with, and the same goes for our guests. A big shout-out to DJ Charlie Hustle. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for providing the excellent music that you've been hearing both on the intro and outro of our podcasts. Everybody that's listening right now, please hit the subscribe button. It helps. Also go to our Facebook page, engage with us there. If you've got questions, comments, uh, concerns, you've got new ideas, anything, head, to the, head, head on to social media, send us a tweet, um, challenge us. Uh, we're all in this together. We're all trying to make this world just a little bit better. We're trying to find some solutions at work. So I hope you enjoy the second half of the season. I sure enjoyed making it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. Uh, today I have uh, an individual named Darcy Loitz. I met Darcy at the Stimulus Conference in Edmonton a couple weeks ago. And uh, we kind of hit it off and, and seemed to share some, some similar ideas Uh Darcy has some lived experience, and he also graduated from the CDI College from their Addiction and Community Service uh, Worker Program. So, Darcy, thanks a lot for coming on the SayNo.org podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. I think it's uh, real important uh, that people can hear these stories and uh, get a little bit of insight on what happens and what uh, some of the underlying causes of addiction are. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly our goal. Um, I don't think it's... I don't think there's any better way of, of educating a community than through storytelling and, and listening to people that actually have firsthand experience because that's that's kind of the way we learn, learn from learn from each other. Yep, I agree. So Darcy, can you can you tell me a bit about, about your life? Um obviously I, I mentioned in the introduction for you there that you have some lived experience. Uh can you go into some detail? Like how you know, what was your life like growing up? Um what uh you know, what sort of lived experience did you develop when it comes to the worlds of drugs and addiction? Um, well, like I mentioned when we were talking earlier, uh, I truly believe uh, that a lot of uh, addiction is is rooted in our childhood and uh, trauma and things that have happened then. And, and that uh, the only way we uh, learn to cope with these things is uh, we end up self-medicating. We just want to get rid of the, you know, terrible feelings we have inside. And and so we end up doing some pretty foolish things and not really looking ahead on how it's going to affect us the rest of our lives. We just want to, you know, get rid of that feeling. Uh, right. And I, <clears throat> I grew up, uh, my mom was married about five times. Not about, she was married five times. Yeah. And uh, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. We'd move every six months. So I got really good at meeting people. Yeah, yeah no doubt. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, both my mother and father uh, lived with alcoholism. 
And uh, my father and my mother, they divorced before I was born. Okay. And uh, one of my very first memories are, it's just a, a picture I have. And it's kind of a sad picture, but it's comforting for me. And I'll kind of say why. Um, is I'm very small. I, I'm probably not even two years old. And I'm all I see is I'm standing in a dark city holding my mother's hand in a little drizzle rain. And it's really uh, not, uh, no, you know, no one would think of it as kind of a happy memory. Right. Um, standing alone on a street corner with your mother as a small child. But uh, for me, it, uh, it, it gives me comfort because my mother was always, uh, we were very close. I guess you could say I was a mama's boy a bit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And so I, I have that memory come up and it doesn't look like a good thing, but to me, I feel it's, you know, it's comforting that she was, the picture comes into my head and it's just, you know, everything's going to be okay. I'm with my mom. Right. And you guys are and together. Yeah. She was, uh, I don't know when her uh, serious alcoholism did start. Um, I'm thinking it was after I was about three Okay. And so I did get some really good uh, bonding with her and, and getting that connection uh, in that amount of time, which I think is very important. Uh, it's like the baseline. And I think it's why I'm able to uh, be where I am today um, in some ways. Um, <clears throat> she'd, uh, let's see. So how, so when you were, um, at that age in that memory, do you think that was then before your mom started struggling? Yeah. Um, well, I, there, there were some issues, uh, before that I don't know what it is. I did never ask her like why we were out on that corner and alone and, and where were my brothers? Uh, hmm. and so I haven't asked a lot of questions of people who may know. I don't know if it's out of, uh, you know, I, it's, I didn't want to have more bad thoughts on right. on my childhood. So I didn't ask about it. I got enough issues. Right. And if that's, um, if that's a nice memory that you remember, maybe you don't want to soil it. Yeah. Right. So, um, I was saying before about how trauma affects us. And yeah. like when I was uh, three years old, I almost died. I was being a silly little boy. And at that time, I tried to climb up the ladder of my bunk bed. And I tried to go in between the top two rungs. And I got caught and then fell back, fell out of the ladder. And it turned and the metal hooks went into my back. Oh, man. And I almost died. The doctor said... Uh, if it had went in a hair thickness more, it would have punctured my lung, and that would have been it. Oh, boy. And my memory of that is, um, I don't remember the pain, of course, thanks yeah. for, to our brains for asking that. <laughs> but the effects of that still, you know, are there. Right. Um, and all I remember is my me running out of the room, screaming, and seeing my mom's face of terror. And she picked me up, and she full rolls of paper towel. She didn't even take the paper towel off the roll and just holding it on my back. And, and when she changed it the one time, all I seen was just a big red 
vlog. <laughs> wow. And well, obviously that scared me a little more. And, and then I don't remember anything after that. That's the only part of that memory. Right. And, and then after that, um, I know my mother's addiction, if it didn't start earlier than that, that's kind of where it started at the end of that marriage oh, or see. during that marriage. And so we ended up, uh, moving to, uh, Southern Alberta or central Southern, yep. the Red Deer area. Okay. And I grew up around there and all the little towns all around it until I was 15. Um, my drug use basically started when I was in grade five. Oh, wow. Uh, and I started with alcohol. You started drinking in grade and, five? Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> so like what age, like 10 basically or so? Um, 11? I think it was about age 11 or 12. Oh, wow. And, you know, at that time, I didn't think I was self-medicating for anything. Right. Um, <clears throat> my mom would, uh, she had a boyfriend in a different town, so she would spend a lot of time there. And me and my brother, Stacy, who's passed away now, uh, <clears throat> we were kind of left to, to our own devices. Oh, I a see. lot of the time, she'd be gone for a week here and there. And then when she wasn't out there, she would uh, be in the hospital a lot. Um, she uh, ended up, she died of uh, hepatitis C and cancer. Oh, wow. Uh, she had uh, told us that uh, she knew she was dying uh, when it happened, that, uh, you know, the medication to help her with the cancer, they couldn't give it to her because of the hepatitis C and vice versa, the medication for the hepatitis C, they couldn't give it to her because of the cancer. So in the mm -hmm. end, it was a matter of time, but uh, she had cancer from before I was in grade five oh. and we kept getting the message from the doctors that, Oh, your mom only has a year to live. Oh, your mom only has six months to live. Oh. So growing up with that, that hanging over all of our heads was, was difficult. Yeah. That's got to be stressful on a, on a young person for sure. Yeah. So uh, still to this day, I have uh, abandonment issues because of it. And, you know, it's, I like to learn about why my brain processes things the way it does. And that's been one of the really helpful things for me in my recovery. Oh, okay. And, uh, and that's kind of why I'm going into the field of uh, addictions, uh, service worker and eventually I'd like to be an addictions counselor right so I'm looking into doing some online u university courses to uh, continue on with that good for you and so I, I started drinking like I said at grade five and uh, you know back then it just seemed normal like I I had other friends and I didn't really it didn't really click with me that their lives were that much different. Um, some of them were much worse than mine. Um, I know a couple of my best friends growing up were uh, physically abused by their parents and uh, they didn't talk about any other types of abuse, but that's understandable. We don't, uh, right. we have we'll that shame and fear that, but I'm sure there was a, a bit of that probably going on with some of them. Right. And so it just seemed like a normal life. And I, I didn't realize that, you know, going to school, I was the only kid that was, you know, pretty much getting drunk. And, and you know, I started using marijuana after that. And then uh, I used LSD and psilocybin mushrooms. 
And how, how uh, yeah, you? it just kind of spiraled into a little lifestyle. How how old were you when you started getting into the LSD and the mushrooms, Darcy? Oh, I was grade six. Oh, that young. Yeah. Wow. Um, I was uh, like I, I never hung out with very many kids my own age for obvious reasons. None of them were uh, abusing substances. Yeah, there's not like too I many was, so... eleven or twelve year olds that want to drop a tab of acid. I wouldn't think. <laughs> yeah, and for me it was an escape. Right. And uh, you know, at the time I thought I was just out having fun, but looking back on my feelings and and the depression and stuff that I had back then, it was it's clear to me now that I was self medicating. Right. And the only how I learned to at that time deal with my issues was by masking them and uh, you know self-medicating so I didn't feel those feelings right it wasn't like I went out and oh yeah oh that looks fun and it was just it was there and I tried drinking the first time and I felt pretty good right and so we just go with it it's easy quick you know it's the uh, old drug addicts uh fallback is that you know instant gratification right i want everything and i want it now yeah and, and that, that along so, with a with the stress that you're dealing with at home with your mom you know looking to be passing away within a year or so yeah and you know um i ate a lot of things that happened my, my mother was uh she cleaned up and, and was sober from the time i was 15 until she passed away and so i, I feel really thankful for that because she I was able to see a different side of her. Like right. she was always a loving parent and I always knew that she really cared for us boys and, and wanted the best for us. But when we're in active addiction, uh, our choices are made right. through that addiction. And so when she did get, get sober and I, I got to see that other part of her where, you know, it wasn't just us that she cared for. It was everybody in her life and she was, you know, always very active in AA and and always there for her, uh, you know, anybody that needed yeah. her. She bent over backwards to help them. And that helped me to, uh, you know, give me strength when I was sobering up. As, you know, <laughs> look at, you know, look what she did. Right. And, you know, I, I always thought that all the stuff that she went through and, you know, it's got to be difficult for the doctor to be telling you you're going to die every six months. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't imagine how that felt. Yeah, no doubt. And so I, I, I have an understanding of the basis of why her addiction came about. And, you know, I don't know all of it because she didn't tell us all the stories of things that happened to her. But, you know, even the, just the little things I know growing up, it's to me, it's, you know, it doesn't make it okay but at least I understand it. And oh, absolutely. It's, we we have these lives and we have choices. And, and when we uh, get pushed in one direction uh, and we don't know how else to deal with things, well, we're going to, you know, take the thing that helped us right there, right quick, and yeah. run with it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, man. Like, uh, you know, as I, I mean, I started off you know, developing my real uh, insight into into the world of drugs and addiction even before I was a police officer and I was working with a lot of youth that came from troubled backgrounds and, you know, I saw their parents whose houses I was picking them up from or heard the stories from the foster homes uh, that they were living in and that kind of thing. And, uh, 
it's interesting because I used to th- I used to think like, you know, you know, it's kind of like like what you said. You know, it's you're medicating yourself, and you know that's an issue. But then at the same time, we live in a society where we medicate ourselves. I mean, that's what we're that's what we do as far as you know, pain medications. If you have surgery or uh, mental health medications, if you're struggling with bipolar disorder, for example, and you know, we, yeah. we, we live in a society where we've created these incredible, um, avenues for people to get some relief and some stability in their lives. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I, I gotta be honest. I think I've kind of come to a part, uh, a part in my understanding, at least for now, um, in the world of addiction that if someone has experienced severe trauma, there are some brain development issues that have that have occurred, and maybe there is a, maybe medication is the way to to help treat this. And unfortunately, because we only have illicit supplies of medication, and and they're hard to come by, and they're not necessarily safe, um, they're not being prescribed by a doctor, and that sort of thing, or monitored. That's where the real trouble and and struggles come in, because. I don't know, like, uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, I talk on a fairly regular basis to sex trade workers in our community just that are walking around and I'll stop in and just, you know, have a chat with them. And the the life that these women in particular have lived, uh, I think it makes complete sense that they're slamming needles into their arms to to try to escape some of that reality. And I don't don't know if I could take that away from them. Like, I think they kind of have every right to do that based on what they've been going through. Yeah, it's, it's it's kind of a weird duality that we live in where it's okay to take these drugs because the doctor tells you to, but you can't self-medicate. And I understand the reasoning behind it. And, For you know, sure. I do agree with it because when we are using illegal substances, we don't know, you know, unless you've done full studies before right. you start your addiction, which I'm pretty sure nobody does. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you're just, you just know the feeling it gives you. And that feeling is, uh, in some cases, relief. And yeah. sometimes it, it brings, you know, you get a little, pe- lots of people enjoy drinking. And, and this is one of the reasons I enjoyed drinking was that, you know, it, it brought me out of my shell a little bit. Right. Because I was very introverted. And uh, even after I quit drinking, I still was. And I would come out of my shell and, and, you know, I would get comments from people, well, you're so much fun and, you, you know, yeah. talkative and telling jokes. And, and so, you know, it was just another uh, reinforcer for me to keep doing what I was doing. Right. And uh, so you grow up with the reinforcements from, as kids, we, all we know is a fact. We don't know, we don't understand cause and we don't really understand consequences all that much. Right. Um, Our brains develop at a certain pace and and we have certain understandings, you know, we can grasp concepts and understand them as we grow up. Right. And as a child of 11 or 12, I certainly didn't have the capacity to look ahead and say, holy shit, if I keep doing this, I could ruin my life. Right. All I knew is that when I did this, I felt better. I didn't, you know, I wasn't really sad all the time and I wasn't scared and uh, worried about what was going to happen. Right. It was, this is what's happening. And yeah, at the time I thought I was just having fun and I didn't think I was that much different than any other kid. Yeah. Um, 
So where do things progress then, Darcy? I mean, it seems, I mean, it is pretty extreme behavior, I think, to be dropping LSD and mushrooms at uh, at the age of 12, say. But but at what point did, like, where did your life go from there? Um, after that, uh, it was all kind of like that until uh, when I was in grade nine, uh, my mom had dropped me off at my aunt and uncle's and said she was going to visit a friend. And, uh, well, uh, I should have told you this before, <laughs> but I feel was a, the major, uh, kind of straw that broke the camel's back for me is, uh, when I was in grade five, uh, me and my brother were sitting in the living room watching TV and there was a knock on the door and, we went and answered it, and it was a RCMP officer and a social worker, and they'd come to tell us that uh, my mom had shot herself in the chest, and oh. she—they didn't know whether she was going to live or not. Oh man! And so that was obviously quite devastating, and oh. uh, so we didn't, you know. For me, I, I don't know what my brother felt all that much. I, I don't think it would be too much different than what I did. No doubt. Uh, I was very scared, and I, I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't know how to deal with it. And uh, the training that social workers had back then, I don't think quite uh, prepared them right. to prepare two little kids uh to deal with the concept that their mother just shot herself in the heart. And so they had her come in and stay with us for a few hours every day to clean the house and make a few meals. But it was, you know, I I really resented how we were informed about it. It was, you know, it would have been nice if it would have been, you know, somebody we knew. Right. And that's something that they are trained now is, is to, you know, involve someone like that if possible to help make it a little easier. I see. Um, just to have somebody there that they know they can, you know, turn to. Yeah, two strangers. Like, yeah, coming in. Yeah, who is like this that. woman? We don't want you here. And, right. And so uh, that's kind of what really got me the ball rolling with my with their drug use drinking and stuff and, well, and my brother as well he he drank a bit before that too he's uh he he was kind of he was also one i learned from how to deal with my problems with yeah using substances right he did the same thing learning it from our parents and right so after all that and you know it was just a perpetual thing we'd move and we were you know just using drugs and drinking and, you know, skipping school and stuff like that. And yeah. then uh, when she dropped me off at my uh, aunt and uncle's, I was 15, well, 14, turning 15. And she w- what she was doing was uh, giving me a place to live because she had told me this after that she had planned to kill herself. Her, and That your mom had? Yeah, that that's why she dropped me off, and that's why she oh, left. Oh, I yes, see. She had felt so bad for how our lives were, right? Um, and, oh. and she felt really guilty and a lot of shame. Oh man! And oh, so did she survive? A, did she survive the the gunshot in the chest when you're in grade five? Yeah, amazingly enough. Wow. She. Uh, 
a lot of a lot of willpower and uh, a lot of positive thinking. Wow. Of, you know, knowing that things could get better. And, and I attribute that to uh, the AA program oh, uh, showing her, you know, she did uh, a, a lot of the things that uh, I, I did in my recovery, uh, the reading materials and stuff. I remember seeing them in as, a, as a kid. And then when I was in my recovery, going, holy crap, that's the book <laughs> mom <looks> familiar. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I know some of the... Uh, the concepts and, and the uh, the strategies that she used in her recovery to right. to stay clean and and get out of the that cycle. Wow! And so so uh, so you're at your aunties oh, now. I was just going to say so you're at so you're at moved into your aunties at the age of fifteen. Yeah, well, I was 15, fourteen, turning 14. fifteen. Okay. <clears throat> and. Uh, she called up one day and I miss her a lot. And I'm just, mom, you know, when are you coming back? When are you coming to pick me up? I miss you. And right. she would say, I don't know. I don't know. And she wouldn't give me a straight answer. And then the final call that she gave me was, it went along the same lines and I was, crying and I'm just I I want you to come home I need you right and later on she told me that that was what kind of saved her life she didn't attempt the suicide she that's what made her decide to get clean is that even though all the trauma and all the things that uh, that had happened as she was raising us that you know I still loved her and my brother still loved her and and we, you know, it wasn't that we didn't care. Like, obviously, we didn't want those things to happen before. Right. But it didn't matter now. That's in the past. Right. What we want is our mother alive. And and in whatever shape or form that took for myself, I, I at that time, I was just, I don't, if things went on the same way, as long as you're alive and, you know, I know you love me. And, yeah. And that, that's all I cared about. And so she came in, she uh, admitted herself into Albert Hospital. And then she was in there for about six months. Um, and then they, she got out Albert Hospital and they have different uh, buildings in the city where it's like a halfway house sort of thing for people reintegrating into, uh, into society. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's from Alberta Hospital. And uh, so I was 15 and she asked me to come live with her. And, you know, I was so happy. Oh, no doubt. So happy. And, you know, not that it was a, a really good experience living with my aunt and uncle. Yeah. Um, we were always close to them growing up and stuff like that. And they taught me a lot of really good values that uh, my mother wasn't able to because of her uh, addiction. Right. So I, I'm so thankful for them in my life. And, no doubt. And what they did, you know, it's in, in you know, the time frame and stuff. It, it kind of, I look at it and it seems like just little things, but it is those little things that, you know, I, I think are part of uh, what has strengthened me and, and shaped part of my, you know, who I am. Right. Um, so, and so I came and I moved in with her. And I like I really I sobered up and stuff when I lived with my aunt and uncle because I lived out on a farm and I I worked for uh, a, a family out there. Yeah. Um, 
which was, it was good, but uh, I ended up, uh, my, I was sexually abused by, by the gentleman I worked for. Oh my God, man. And, uh, of course, being a, a young man, I, I didn't want to tell anybody. Right. And I didn't know how to make it stop. And I felt really guilty and that, you know, for years and years and until, you know, until I spoke about it with my, with my doctor and my psychiatrist, I, I still felt a lot of, uh, that, you know, I, I should have made it stop. I, I mean, I, I, it's a common thread for people who've been sexually abused to, you know, to think that we had enough power and control to, you know, end the situation. Right. Uh, but as, as children, those are our authority figures. And, you know, what do I do? What do I say? I, I was, I wrote a poem about it. I called it stock still. And it was just the feeling of uh, the helplessness. Right. And, and and the guilt. It's, I I didn't know what to do, but for some reason I think I should have done a lot. Right. <laughs> um, so I beat myself up about it, and and I wouldn't. I never told anybody about this and, until like last year. Wow. Well, I appreciate your candor on here. Um, it, it's it's important um, to share these stories because somebody out there is listening could be going through that same experience that you were, you know, when you were fifteen. Yeah, and to to well, know that they're not alone. Um, I know I started follow, uh, following Theo Fleury online, and and uh, his his feed and and the information that he puts out now is is so impressive. And and you know that that world of of abuse to young young boys in particular often goes unreported because of the shame. Yeah. Well, we we're growing up, and what I think is another problem with our our society is is you know the on the female side, it's you you have to be slim and beautiful, and you know they have all those pressures. Yeah. And but the young men have the pressures. Uh, we we're not supposed to share our feelings. Right. We're not supposed to cry. We're not supposed to you know be weak. Right. And but- so you know it wasn't that somebody came up to me and said. Uh, you can't do this and you can't do that, but mainstream media everywhere, it's everywhere that we're supposed to be like this. Right. And it gives us this false picture that we're supposed to, you know, conform to. Just like young ladies are supposed to conform to a model that, you know, weighs 90 pounds and is, you know, fits this Barbie doll thing. Right. And it's just not realistic. And and I, it's not realistic to expect young men to stuff all their problems down and not have any issues. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, a, And so I, I think a lot of young men put up with things right. because they feel they have to and they don't want to be ostracized by the other boys. That's and, right. You know, being called names, you're a little pussy and this right. and that. I think, you know, I, I watched a very good documentary called The Masks We Wear. And uh, as I watched it, I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, so true. And, and it opened my eyes to uh, parts of my personality that changed because of that world view of how a young man is supposed to be or how a man is supposed to be. Right. And, is, that, is that documentary was available on Netflix, do you know, or where did you see that? Uh, it was. 
I'm not sure if it's still on Netflix. We'll try. I'll try to find. But, a, I'll try to find a link to it and put that in the show notes for this episode too, in case anybody's interested. Yeah, it's a it's a very uh, compelling. Uh, you know, it, it changed my thoughts on things. Right. On how we raise our young men. Yeah. And uh, I'm a father of two, so I was very thankful that uh, I did my best to raise my boys to be loving and to show emotion yeah. and it's okay to cry. And, you know, it's okay to have problems and talk about your problems because they're not going to get solved. Right. Darcy, when, when we go back, um, I don't know how much you want to, you want to disclose, but when we go back to that moment of abuse, are you, how did that start? Like, how does, is it something like, cause you always hear about like grooming processes that a lot of these predators uh, enact, like how, was it like like how does something like that start when you're just working for a guy and then all of a sudden you're being abused by them? Yeah, well, he lived just down the road from uh, my aunt and uncle, and when I moved out there, um, there was a government program where the you could have a young man work for you on the farm, and the government would pay half the wage and the farmer would pay half the wage. Okay, and so that was obviously great for both of us i right. wanted to make some money and and he needed a hand and the uh, cheaper labor was great and he was a very nice man um this may be strange to say um i'm not happy with what happened and it's definitely wrong mm -hmm. but it, it wasn't I, I don't view it as he did it to it, he's had his own issues i mean usually it's learned behavior with stuff like that uh, where it's been done to them so i don't know what happened to him in his childhood yeah um maybe it's because that's what helps me cool. uh come to terms with what happened and, and to be you know not let it really affect me as much as it could right by trying to understand why he may have done it and it uh it started out the first time that uh you know i was working for him and we got along great and i got along with his family wonderfully and i would uh, i spent a lot of time there and uh after work one day i was really sore and, and he asked me if i wanted back rub just before bed right i said sure i didn't think much about it and then he started you know he gave me the back rub and then he asked me to turn over Oh, I see. and I didn't think too much about it. I was not, you know, I wasn't thinking, holy crap, what is this guy getting attacked? And I just thought, you were he's going to, you know, massage my chest or right. whatever, because right. I was sore. I worked really hard. Yeah. And when he first touched me, it was just shock and I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I, I was speechless. Right. And that kind of laid the basis for my self-blame for me that, right. you know, if, if I'd, uh, you know, it, I, I'd always thought there must've been on some level that I enjoyed it because I didn't ask him to stop. Oh, okay. But, you know, I have working with, with my doctor and stuff and, and other people that have shared their uh, sexual abuse stories with me. We have these similar similarities in common that, you know, we wanted it to stop. We didn't know how to make it stop. That's so right. we must have, you know, we take that blame on ourselves. Yeah, there's, a, and, there's I mean, in, in the limited uh, training that I've had through work and everything on on uh, on abuse, especially in children, I think one of, the, one of the things that people often forget, and I think 
could be part of what contributes to the shame and everything involved is is we ignore the fact that you know what it does physically feel good and so these children yeah. a lot of these children that are being you know um sexually abused by their by you know a parent or or a coworker or or I shouldn't say a coworker but a neighbor or you know some some associate in the family typically is that it starts off feeling good i mean everybody enjoys yeah. you know to be touched sexually and touched in general and there's there is that sense of um support and belonging that comes from that even though it's it's clearly you know wrong in this person's yeah this this uh well, person's you know preying on on a very young and vulnerable person yeah it was it was a strange duality uh you know you have a one side where you know nature makes it feel good for us so we procreate yeah, that's right yeah <laughs> and and then on the other hand it's being done and you know it's wrong right and you have that fear and it's it's a really hard to, to really explain the, the the feeling of both of them together right um and you know i think that's like you're saying that's part of why we have this uh you know it felt good so i must have liked it right right and let it go on and we blame ourselves that way because because we don't understand we're not you know that's right um, developed enough uh, in our in our you know logic and understanding to to see that you know how to deal with it and how to make it stop right. and that you know we shouldn't feel you know ashamed that we're not doing anything wrong it's them that right. are doing something wrong yeah and that brain to body connection's not there at that early age yeah wow and so after uh, after I moved from there. I lived out there for nine months and worked for him. And, and then when my mom was in the uh, community integration building or whatever you want to call it, yeah, I lived with her for two months there. And I got to meet some some fascinating people. The most intelligent man I ever met in my life I met there. Mm. Uh, he, was, uh, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia with psychotic tendencies oh, yeah. which sounds really scary oftentimes um, there's not much oftentimes in my experience too uh i don't know it seems like the higher the higher intelligence level with some with some people especially with paranoid schizophrenia you start realizing well this person's a lot smarter than i am yeah and just talking to him you could see the intelligence and and stuff and but he had some funny quirks you know yeah. i not funny because it is, you know, mental health and mental health is not a funny issue. Right. But when on the outside looking in, it's kind of like, it gives you a smile. Right. And, right. and he knew it was his schizophrenia and his, uh, the psychosis that comes with it. But he, he had to be home at night at five o'clock to listen to a certain radio station because he was getting messages. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And uh, that's, I didn't think that was all that funny. I was just, whoa, that's, you know. Holy shit, that would suck. Yeah. Um, but what I thought was kind of funny was he had a little game. He had a bad memory. And he had one of those uh, toy guns with the the sticky bullet that oh, yeah. sticks to the wall or whatever, the little suction up ones. Yeah. And he had uh, a little Bambi card cut out thing stand. And before he would leave his house every day, he would hide it somewhere. 
because he knew he would forget where it was when he got home. Oh, yeah. And he kept the, the little gun by the door. And when he got home every day, he would take the gun and he would go hunting Bambi. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And he, he would tell me about it and smile. And he thought it was funny, too. But it was part of his uh, routine. And uh, it, it helped to fill some need for him somehow, I think. Um, because we have these strange little quirks when our brains are not quite working in the way they should. Right. And, and he understood these things and he worked with it. Uh, and I, I, I thought that was a really good way, you know, if you can't, uh, you can't beat them, join them sort of thing. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, you work with what you yeah, have. Work and with what you, have. Yeah, everyone, you gotta, you gotta make your own adaptations to your own quirks. I know, uh, yeah. my, my partner and I at work talk about that all the time because we we're both fairly forgetful. So we have little, strategies in place to remind us to do certain things or where we've put things and yeah no different so things uh it was my mom when she got out and uh, like i said i was 15 years old and and i lived with her for two months and it was it was an adjustment i'd always lived in the biggest city i'd lived in before that was red deer which was sixty thousand people at that time and all the rest were either uh, oh, I lived on the farm sometimes, and but mostly in little towns and okay. stuff like that. Right. <clears throat> and which I I, I hated it. I, I would make some friends, or I'd get a girlfriend, and then oh, we're moving. Right. Uh, oh, we're moving, and so it was very. There was no stability, and uh, so when she got out, and you could see there was more stability, even though we were in the situation. I, you could see the change right. of her being sober and, you know, where she calculated her decisions to make sure she was, you know, what she thought was the right choices to make. And it was, it was nice. I, I could see it, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't re understand, uh, mental health right. and all the stuff that revolves around that. And, but as I got older and I, I learned more and, and I talked to my mom and, and I came to understand that, you know, some of the processes that, that she went through and, and it, it was difficult at first they had her on just a battery of medications and, and it was too much. It was, it, she had all kinds of these pills and stuff and they made her all spaced out and, I can remember her calling home one night lost. She didn't know where she was. She had taken her medication and wandered off. And she said, I don't know where I am. I'm in an apartment building sitting on the stairs. Oh, man. And so we had to, we called uh, EPS, Edmonton City Police, and said, you know, give them the story. And they found her after a few hours. Um, but it, it really, you know, that scared me again because I thought, oh, my God. It's from one thing to another, and, and that is very common in addictions. Right. You know, we'll switch drugs because maybe we see something we don't like in the one, and but we don't know how to get sober, so we switch to another drug that cures that problem, but also kind of cures the ones that we, not cures, but, you know, masks right. the problem that we had before. And now, okay, this one it does the same thing for me, but it doesn't have those issues. Yeah, I've, seen that, where, I've seen that a lot too. I've seen, I've seen uh, before. I mean, now it seems like everyone uses methamphetamine because it's so cheap. But 
when it was more expensive, I found a lot of the opiate users as a means of coming off opiates um, and, and kind of solving that addiction, they would just switch to methamphetamine thinking it's not as bad. And of course, an addiction's an addiction and the, the chaos in their life didn't, didn't really settle down. They just, the substance they used just was slightly different. Yeah. I, I, in my active addiction and the friends I had in my active addiction, I, I, that was a number of them. I seen them and they would switch back and forth. Um, they would, uh, you know, they would use the math and, oh, wow, well, yeah, I, I used to be a heroin user, but now, you know, I don't use that anymore. And then they slip back into it. And right. and then all of a sudden they got these two they're rolling with and, and that's scary. Yeah. So, so what, what was your, when you were in, in the height of your, um, of the struggling you were doing and, and using drugs to medicate, was alcohol your primary substance or did you get into other drugs? Um, well, it was until I was 24. Okay. Um, I was, it was my 24th birthday and, and, uh, I was like a weekend warrior. I mean, most people think, oh, I don't have a drinking problem if I only drink on the weekend. Interesting. But I, I definitely knew I had a problem. <laughs> so you've been because, drinking every weekend kind of thing? Yeah. And how I knew I had a problem was that all week long, every day going through my mind was, okay, Friday night, Saturday night, I got to, you know, line everything up so uh, I can get drunk. Right. And at that time, I didn't make a lot of money. And I did my best to make sure we had our uh, bills paid. And so my whole thought pattern was how do I make sure I got my drinking money right so uh, <clears throat> my 24th birthday I walked into my house with a case of beer and a bottle of whiskey and I seen my two toddlers sitting on the floor playing and there was just a shift uh, my mind went to my childhood with the alcoholism and the thought through my head is what the hell are you doing and I gave away the case of beer and the bottle of whiskey and I never drank for five years. Oh, wow. And, and then after the five years, I, I would have a beer here and there, Yeah. but would never, you know, I got drunk every now and then after, right. but you know, it was, I you didn't, like you didn't need to go complete abstinence, the complete abstinence model. Yeah. I, I, and I think it was, I knew how the drinking affected me and how I felt as a child. And I didn't want that for my kids. I didn't want, I wanted them to have stability. And but growing up, my, my dream was to become a father, not a drug addict. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and so I, I, I saw what my actions, I knew what my actions could really ultimately lead to with, with alcohol. And, uh, I wasn't going to let that happen. Right. And so I, I, I'd use cannabis for, you know, since I was drinking as a kid too, that was yeah. common around easy to get. Yeah. Easier than the acid anyway. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. It. And, uh, so I, I used that and that was my main medication until I was 40 and there were some things that led up to this, but then I used crystal meth. Oh, wow. Um, 
I'd used it uh, years previously. I'd been introduced to it and smoked a little bit of it out of a broken light bulb. Oh, wow. And my thought was, why the hell do people do this? I just, <laughs> I'm awake. And I can't sleep. Right. That's no fun. <laughs> right. And then I did a line of it years later once and kind of thought the same thing. Um, and so to skip a, uh, skip ahead a little bit, um, I was dealing with life, um, not, you know, excelling. Um, my concern was my boys. I wanted a stable life for them. Yeah. And so I, I worked, uh, their mother was very abusive. Um, she was, a. I, I we drank together obviously. And, and oh, I see. she's unfortunately still, still in active addiction today. And, uh, but she would, it's, uh, I, I live with uh, complex PTSD, and uh, I, I think a big part of it is, is due to that relationship and the abuse. Um, she tried to get physically abusive with me, but she's not that tough. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, mentally and verbally, she's a master. Mm. Uh, she would uh, almost on a daily basis tell, tell me that she hated me that I was a worthless piece of shit, that I wasn't even a man, that she, you know, when we made love, it made her sick. And, and do you think it you, was, uh, do you think you put up with that oh, so long because of maybe how you're feeling when you're abused that the thing she's telling you is how you felt about yourself? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I've, I never, you know, um, tell the you know it, it's all stems from that grade five you know i i felt good about myself when i was a little kid and, and uh, i was just a normal little kid and, you know right. i was the leader of our little group of friends and and stuff like that and and yeah it just totally the one event uh it, it was that was a crossroads that was that event sent me down the road i think it was like that part of my life that was a camels the straw that broke the camel's back yeah and and i I did rely on my own memories and how i felt and i did like any parent does they want better for their kids than they had yeah and that was a, a big driver that's why i wanted to be a father is i never really had a good father figure in my life my my father actually passed away when I was 18 of uh, cirrhosis of the liver. Because he was an alcoholic. And, you know, it was, we we seen him about once a year. And uh, and my two half-sisters and half-brother, which are fantastic people. I, oh, I don't good. get to see them much, but, but they're very close to my heart and always very supportive. And, you know, it, it's that we didn't grow up together, but yeah. we grow grew up together in that atmosphere. So, so, and, so how did you go from, uh, I mean, so you started hitting the snorting meth lines. Um, did that progress into yeah. a methamphetamine addiction or was that just sort of a weekend warrior type behavior as well? Oh, I only did those once each. Oh, I see. <laughs> and then when I was, when I once, uh, yeah, I just kind of 
leading into why this happened, uh, why I got into full-time using meth and into the, uh, the severe addiction it is, is uh, <clears throat> I had, uh, my boys were, my oldest boy turned 18 when I was 40, and my youngest boy, uh, he is, he was a year and a half younger, and they were my life. And I really think that they were the only things that kept me together and kept me, you know, driven. Yeah. And uh, so they moved out, well, because they were, you know, old, they were the age to move out. And, and I, you know, I don't know, I, I think, I, I still think it was a good choice. Um, like I told my boys, I said, uh, when you turn 18, um, you're, you can live here rent-free on two, one of two conditions. You either have a job or you're still going to school. Right. And otherwise, you need to, you know, yep. I'm not going not gonna to support, support a, you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Responsible and, parenting uh, 101. And, and my boys understood that. And, and so we lived in a tiny little town, <laughs> which every kid wants to escape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so they moved out on their own and, you know, I'm very proud of my boys and, and, uh, but, and it was very hard. And the year just before that, a couple of years before that, my mom did pass away. Oh man. Um, oh wow. So she actually, to, uh, so your mom didn't just keep going year by year. She was actually, she actually lived for quite yeah, a long she, time. She, yeah. She lived like 20 years longer at least than what she was supposed to. Wow. And, uh, you know, I attribute that to her attitude. Right. Um, that, you know, she didn't let life control her and, you know. Not, it kind of sounds like she almost she, decided to take take her life into her own hands for for the life that she'd been living at the time and kind of really took control of things and made some really yeah. conscious, big decisions. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's, that, that part helped me so much with my recovery. Right, because you, had, you that, kind of had those... I, morals to look to that strength yeah and 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 it's like that that's why i, I want to tell my story and and uh, you know it's we feel so alone in addiction and even though we're not we we feel alone in a room full of people yeah and it's a strange feeling i bet um and yet people you know people that you do know love you and they say they love you. You're just kind of, yeah. 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 It's, it, you know, it's true, but it feels like lip service. <laughs> it's not sinking in. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, and I believe for me anyway, it, it's because I had such a low, uh, self-worth and I, I, I thought the only thing I was good at was, was being a father. Right. Um, because I did see that I, you know, I made sure I did the best I could. That's right. And and deep down, I knew that. Right. And so that was the only thing that I was proud of in my life. Um, and then they moved out, and that was difficult. But I was dating a woman who I thought we would be together for, for the rest of our lives. I, we were, she said she was, you know, I was her soulmate, and we were totally yeah. in love, and, and I was just yeah. head over heels. And the year after my youngest boy moved out, she woke up one day and said, 
yeah, I don't love you anymore. I'm moving out and was gone that day. Oh, wow. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. That um, rejection? It was, yeah, it was lost, lost, always lost through my life. And then finally, it's, I always had my boys. You know, when I was a kid, I had my brother. He was, he was my stability. He was what kind of kept me grounded a little bit anyway. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, we, uh, you can only do so much, but, right. uh, but they, they really kept me going and, and, you know, and my desire to uh, build the best life for them as I could. And I wanted them to have the stability that I didn't have. And, and I did the best I could. And, and, and I did pretty good because we lived in the same little town for 20 years. <laughs> so uh, that was much more stability than I'd ever had. And so I was happy with that. And yeah. uh, it, it was, I, I, the empty nest syndrome or whatever they call it. Yep. Uh, it was, I never realized how hard that would hit me. Um, but when it initially they moved out, I had my girlfriend, so, and I focused a lot on her. And uh, my intentions were good, but how it came out and came across to her uh, was that I was clingy and weak. Okay. And, but really, I, I'm just so scared of losing the last person in my life. That, right you know, right. that I had there. And so I was doing, and, and I did that throughout my life with friends and stuff. I, I was always a very giving person. And, and it's, I, I just thought I would lose people if I, if I didn't, you know, please them. Uh, yeah. My codependencies or I'm a people pleaser and a caretaker. Right. I want to take, you know, I don't want people to, to go, you know, suffer. And, and if I can help them, I've always, you know, done what I could to do that. And, got me in a lot of troubles, especially in my, uh, when I was in my active addiction, right. I got taken advantage of quite a bit. And so she moves out and I was just, Oh my God. And I worked shift work. Like I had friends, yeah. but I worked three different shifts two weeks at a time. And basically, um, because of everybody else's schedule, um, I never got to see anybody hardly ever. Uh, because when they were working, I was at home or sleeping. And when I was working, they were either at home or sleeping. And so I, I was very solitary a lot of the time, which uh, made it all that much more difficult. Well, they do say, and I, did. I know Johan Hari, I don't know if you ever read his book, Chasing the Screen, but I reference it quite a bit. But his the big context of that book really is the opposite of Addiction isn't sobriety. Addiction it's, is connection. It's, yeah, it's connection. Yeah, you know it all <laughs> yeah, too well, I, I'm sure. I totally agree with that. And, you know, I, I'm still dealing with that, with that connection. And that's, you know, part of what really helps me uh, and drives me in this, in, in the field that I want to get into of, of counseling is I want to take the things that. I know I love and that helped me and I want to, you know, pass that on to others and, and let them know that they're not alone because, you know, we, we are so alone in active addiction. It, um, it feels that way. So, so is that some advice that you would give to somebody that is looking for a big change is to start reaching out to people around them or? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, uh, 
uh, healthier than we are in our active addiction anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. Because um, there's always lots of people that are in your addiction, but, uh, but they don't always have the best of intentions. That's right. Did you ever, just an off question, did you ever get in trouble with the law when you were, when you were drinking lots or? Um, no, I've never even been arrested. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, I guess, I, I guess I you're would... mostly using a substance that's very readily available. Yeah, and uh, I I had a really good job. Like, okay, um, I'll get on to that. You'll understand as we go through the story why. Um, but uh, yeah, when she left, uh, like I said, that was it. I I was just I I could all I could physically feel my uh, the depression and the PTSD and everything jump on my back and it was I I, I felt I, I knew my family loved me I knew my kids loved me yeah but it was I was so lost and I, I just I decided fuck it you know yeah I, I I felt I had nothing to live for I wow. my kids were raised I did my job there um, it didn't come into my head that you know we never finish raising our kids that's right <laughs> We're, we're always, you know, they need us still. And, but I, I didn't felt, grasp for that. You, you've probably felt like you of, lost a part of your identity, right? Being a dad is suddenly gone from you, especially something yeah, that you would and have. Yeah. It was the most important thing in my life to me. Right. And then when it was gone, I switched that to uh, my girlfriend and that was, it it didn't sit well with her <laughs> um, that yeah. uh, I, I paid so much attention and wanted to do so much for her. No doubt. Um, I I came off as needy and and you know weak and and I understand that perspective and you know I I have no hard feelings towards her. You know she didn't cheat on me like my the mother of my kids did. She wasn't a raging abusive alcoholic. And, right. you know, we had a lot in common and, and it was, you know, and that in itself was really hard. It was like, I, I finally found someone that, you know, treated me well. <laughs> and yeah. then they left. Yeah, they and left. I'm just like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And work was, uh, I didn't notice some of the abuse at work that I was putting up with Yeah, because of my focus was on my kids and I needed that job to take care of my kids. Yeah. And when I lost it, it felt like I'd lost everything. Right. And so then and, what, what did you turn to at that point, Darcy? Well, I was hanging out with a girl and we'd been best friends for 15 years. And she was in active addiction. I didn't know about that. Like we'd use cocaine together and we got drunk together all the time. And, uh, but I never got addicted to the cocaine. Like once the weekend was over, it was, I, you know, I didn't care. I I had no cravings. I had, you know, nothing like that. Um, and I do attribute that to my, to my boys and, and how important they were to me. And, and, that, you know, my focus was always on them. So it, I, I don't know if anything could have overtaken that for me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but losing them, it made it that much more devastating to me too. And so she introduced me. She goes, oh yeah. And she was selling it. You're selling and meth or coke? So, or both? And meth. Meth. Oh, okay. And so she did, it was her birthday party, I believe. And I did a line there and I'm just, oh yeah, that was when I did my first line. And I, it was the same thing. Why are you guys doing this? Now I can't sleep. I got to work in the morning. This sucks. <laughs> right. And, uh, but there was also a little relief there. And so after I'd went home and laid in bed all night awake, I, once I came off it, um, with my dopamine production depleted, my depression went way down. Like, like my whole mood dropped and, and everything was worse, but I didn't connect the two. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't understand how drugs affect the mind and body and what it does like I do today from uh, my training in addictions. And so I, I understand a lot of it today, which actually is one of the major things I attribute to uh, my recovery and stuff is, is the understanding. Right. I can understand things and I can deal with those things. Uh, but at that time, I, I, I didn't know it was the mess that made my mood drop to the basement even you know way worse than it even was that's right and i I was you know close to suicide you know i had suicidal thoughts all the time um how were you using how are you using if you don't mind me asking are you smoking or or shooting uh i just did the couple lines yeah that one night and then some people i met there uh uh, invited me over a weekend later or a couple weekends later and uh, they were intravenous drug users. Wow. And they introduced me to uh, uh, they, you know, we get along great. They were nice people. Right. <laughs> like uh, I'm still friends with the one guy. He's moved to a different province now, but he's clean and sober and he's doing really well. And so I'm really happy and proud of him. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so he, we were there, I was there with them and they had moved to a different town and he started uh, mixing up a couple of rigs for him and his girlfriend. And he goes, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want you to do this, but I feel bad if I don't offer it to you. <laughs> Just a, even goes, politeness, even in the, there's even politeness in yeah. the intravenous drug world, eh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh. I, I still remember that my very the thought that I had in my head when I when I agreed that when not agreed but said I wanted to yeah was but the thought going through my head was why not who cares right you know I have nothing left so I might as well you know the rest of the last of my life I might as well enjoy it. yeah and so I said yeah and he gave me my first shot and then I understood how people get addicted to meth <laughs> from that moment. It was, it was, I'd never felt anything like that in my life. Wow. And the overload of dopamines in my brain. And it was just, wow, I, I'm not sad at all. I'm, I don't care about that other stuff anymore. It was the miracle. Cure. Felt great. Yeah. 
And then I, you know, I used every second weekend or so for a couple months and, and ex- pretty much exclusively intravenously. Wow. Um, and then it was, you know, I just kept going and I like every drug user that stays in active addiction, uh, I needed more up my dose, up my dose. And I was up to, uh, I would use a uh, half a gram in a needle in the morning before work wow. to get me through the day wow. or the night because I, I chose the night shifts. So there was less contact yeah. with people. I never used at work except for a couple of instances when uh, I was generously letting my drug dealer roommate borrow my car to go re-up oh, yeah. and uh, they wouldn't show up to pick me up and where I worked was in the middle of the bush. <laughs> oh, wow. Basically, it was a 45-minute drive yeah. on a secondary highway. And so... so so how much was your how much was your habit and your peak of methamphetamine use roughly? Um, the one year I spent eighty thousand dollars. Eighty thousand. Yeah, for it wasn't just all my the people that uh, I had three roommates and I had a girlfriend. Yeah, and I would supply them a little bit, and me and my girlfriend. Yeah. And, uh, so I had taken, uh, $50,000 out of my, my pension. Oh, wow. Just for meth. Yeah. Oh boy. I spent on, on three days, one weekend, we went on a trip and I'd bought an, an ounce and we went through all of that. Wow. And yeah, it was just, it, you, you lose yourself. Yeah, no doubt. You don't see the the wake of destruction. Like I, I wasn't, I never stole from people. I never, you know, I was, I still had this, this morality that, you know, I lived with that yeah. I adhered to that, you know, I, I wasn't going to steal like, and if I wouldn't have cleaned up and, and I lost, you know, lost my job and everything, I, I'm sure I would have turned to that. Right. But I was functioning high enough, even at the high doses that I was using that uh, nobody at work knew I was, uh, you know, an intravenous drug user. Yeah, shooting up before work. That's wild, man. Yeah, I, I did it on driving to work. Be wow. driving to work, trying to get that thing in my arm. Wow. <laughs> it was. I, I had some very scary drives to work. No doubt. And, you know, it, it, it affected my work in that I barely got to work on time every day. <laughs> Wow. It's uh I used to call it uh in in Edmonton we call crystal meth pint. Right. Uh, one of the terms used and I always call it pincher time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know the, I always said you know what's the what's the slowest thing in the world? Uh, pincher in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's because you go off on all these little tangents and you're you know you're spending uh you think you're doing it for 10 minutes but it's been 6 hours. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you get that obsessive compulsive and, behavior on little things. Yeah, and so I was, you know, I 
couldn't understand it. I was just, why am I, you know, why do I have to drive to work at 100 miles an hour every day? <laughs> I know what time I have to go to work. I'm awake, yeah. and, but I would just lose time. You lose time with that drug. Right. And, you know, I'm sure it affected uh, some other things. Like I, at work, I wasn't, uh, even when I was, before I got into my meth addiction, I was, not treated the same as the other people in the shop. They had all grown up together and been friends since childhood. And, and I was like an outsider. Mm-hmm. And so I was treated differently. And I, it was a very negative a- atmosphere there. Yeah. Um, they were very self-centered and, and were very negative towards everyone else. And, and that bothered me. Right. And I, I, I didn't, I couldn't, uh, stay in that atmosphere. So I would have my lunches alone and I would take my breaks alone and, and to, uh, avoid them as much as possible, which in the end was really helpful through my addiction because <laughs> then when I was avoiding everybody, it wasn't any different than when I was sober. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, and so it made it easier for me, unfortunately, to uh, live that life. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of uh, abuse there, uh, a lot of stuff thrown on me. I used to have to take pictures of my work before and after work to prove what I did right. and what I didn't do. Um, I had my work sab- sabotaged and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, it was really difficult working there, but I, I never really noticed it a lot when my kids were with me because it was, I, I would put up with anything for them. Right. You know, yeah, was that, that was the big was reason I, yeah. I stayed in my relationship with my ex for 12 years. Right. I knew I had to get out after five. So, so how did you get? How, how did you get to the point from? I mean, slamming, slamming a needle in your arm, working in this toxic environment, and using, you know, going from. I mean, I would say that's a, that's almost as a, as an extreme drug use as you could get when you're slamming meth into your veins on a regular basis, multiple times a day, spending, you know, yeah. eighty grand a year, um, taking money out of your pension. I mean. It doesn't get much worse than that as as far as realizing that you've got some issues with methamphetamine use. How do you get from that to the guy that I'm talking to right now? Um, well, I didn't realize it until I went to treatment, but I was trying to kill myself. And I just wanted to have a fun time while I was doing it, apparently. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, abusing uh, yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and the last year of my uh, active addiction... Um, I, I knew I wanted to quit. I, I, my depression, if I wasn't, even if I, I'd missed it for, you know, for, you know, a day, I was suicidal. I, I, I had suicidal thoughts in my head. Yeah. Um, and I, I just wanted to die. And in my mind was, I, I, I did start to, I, I'd learned that what the drug, the basics of what it did to me, how it worked. Yeah. Um, and so I put two and two together, obviously, and said, holy fuck, this is making everything worse. This is why I feel worse all the time. And, but I didn't know how to quit. Um, I had the, it was fear, um, because I thought, well, I'm going to lose my job if I, you know, seek help. Right. And then I would lose everything that I'd worked my whole life for my house and my life. It, It was like, I would be, I, for some reason, I thought I was going to be some homeless guy out in the bush <laughs> if I told somebody that I needed help. 
Um, and fortunately, I got caught with uh, some of it on my person at work one day. Um, I had a little bit, I had this uh, container on my keychain that uh, I would store a little bit in. And I forgot all that I had that in there and I lost my keys at work. Oh. And someone found it, found them and turned them in and they found the crystal math and called me into the, I was working night shift. Yeah. And so at the end of the shift, the shift leader called me up and said, Hey, we found your keys. Come up to the office. And I just, ah, right on. And I was really concerned all night because I'd went back to where I dropped them yeah. and it was kind of a strange place to try and get them. It was kind of difficult. Yeah. And I looked there and they were gone early in the shift, like yeah, yeah. half an hour after I got there. Yeah. And so I knew somebody had found them and I couldn't remember if I had any drugs in that little container. So all night, all night long, I was, oh my God, oh my God, you know, <laughs> Why hasn't, uh, you know, why haven't they called me in yeah. to say they have either found them and here you go or to say you're fired, you're a drug addict. Yeah, so what did <laughs> and, they do? Uh, um, so they, he called me in at the end of shift after he had contacted the uh, GM of the, the plant site and uh, the other higher-ups that needed to be involved. And when I sat down, when I got into his office and I seen the keys laying on the table with the open container i was just uh oh yeah i'm caught the gig's up yeah and i i figured okay here we go well i made the choice i got to deal with it and uh he was you could tell he was scared yeah um he didn't know what the drug was well none of them did they had they asked me in the meeting what is it anyway (laughs) (laughs) and uh but so we the uh main office is just uh, down a little service road into the uh, the mill complex where I worked. And I'm sitting in the passenger side, and he's not talking to me. <laughs> and I, I think he was Probably a little scared. Or scared. He, didn't yeah. Know. Yeah. He, he didn't know if I was going to, you know, freak out yeah. or what I was going to do, I think. And yeah, so he didn't place. say anything. And he, we're driving up, and you can see the parking lot, and I'm looking for cops. I'm looking for, you know, I'm, you know, am I going to jail? Yeah. Did they ride around? No, no. Um, they actually, it was, uh, it turned out better than I ever had imagined it would have. Uh, I was a little relieved when I didn't see any, uh, cruise police cruisers in the parking lot. Yeah, no doubt. But I still knew I had to face the music. Uh, I thought I was going to lose my job for sure. Um, so I get in this meeting and I'm, uh, I'm coming down a little bit off the, the drugs I'd taken before I'd left for work. And I'm just, Oh my God, mm-hmm. I, I had no idea what was going to happen. I, I was sure I was going to lose my job. And the first question was, as uh, you know why you're here, right? <laughs> and uh, and yep. I'm uh, yep. <laughs> and, uh, he goes, well, why are you here? And I said, uh, well, I said, I have a drug problem. And I said, I, I, I would really like some help. And I was uh, really honest. Good for um, you. And my honesty formed a very good connection with the, uh, the plant GM. Yeah. Um, which is, he, he's such a 
such a one, you know, he was so important at that point in my life to me. He's such a, well, no I, doubt. he looked at who I, I could be, not right. what I was doing. Right. And, uh, and we'd be, ended up becoming fast friends, but, uh, he, he asked me, you know, and I give him that reply and, and he goes like, well, what is it anyway? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, it's crystal math. And I had no explanations. I didn't yeah. know what to say. I, you know, it was just I have a problem. So did they send you the tre- so they send you the treatment then, or? Yeah, yeah, they did. Your uh, company did. They paid for uh, it. They paid for the majority of my treatment, and wow. I had to pay the other. Uh, I paid a thousand dollars out of my pocket. Wow, that's impressive, man. And and so I went in, and and I was. I wanted help. I wanted to get better. Right. And, and so I knew the only way to get better was to go into the treatment program and uh, leave all my preconceived ideas. Yeah. And actually give it a the go door. and try to give it yeah, a go. And, yeah. And, and I, I put all of my being into the program there. Good for you. And uh, I, I was, I went to, uh, Northern Addictions uh, Center in uh, Grand Prairie. Wow. Man, that's um, that's living proof just for anybody that's listening. I mean, that's proof that these employment-based programs and supporting your employees actually work. Like, it, yeah. r- right now we have a, a major opiate crisis going on in the in the city, and it's, I mean, in the city, in the country, and it's uh, it's a lot of working uh, trades guys that are that are dropping down or overdosing or you know, uh, we're closely connected with mom, stop the harm. And, uh, and in their organization, there's a lot of moms and it was their, their sons were working in the oil field, working as trades professionals. They kept their addiction a secret. Um, you know, they might've been using it to medicate them from some pain or trauma or like a physical injury. And it led to an addiction and it just shows that these employers out there need to support those employees, realize what it is, see the individual and actually, I mean, yeah, Obviously we're I, I like we're we're people first. Yeah, exactly. Drug people first. After. Yeah, people first. <clears throat> wow. I mean, there's you know, it's not always trauma that leads to addiction. Obviously, right? But, yeah, not you always. Know, we 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 live such stressful lives. Yeah. Um, we have so many things that we have to take care of, and it's it's not the big stressors that do the damage. It's after all the little stressors pile up and you've got a mountain of little stresses That's that true. you never dealt with. That's and, you know, and eventually it, it just becomes too much for some of us. Right. You know, it's not that we're weak people. Um, maybe it's because we have this, we need to do more and we're putting that stress on ourselves. And, you know, we do that every day over and over and over and, pretty soon it becomes fairly unbearable oh, no and doubt. we need a release of some sort. And if we don't know how we coping strategies and how to release this stuff and, and how to deal with it healthily, we turn to, you know, what we see everywhere. Yeah. Um, alcohol is the biggest one because it's legal. Right. It's there, there's a liquor store on every freaking corner in That's Edmonton. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's socially acceptable. That's right. So people turn to that and, you know, the majority, yeah. um, because it's there and you know, every, it's okay. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a I good, it's drink. a good point, man. I mean, the, the research shows that 
the the number one abused drug or substance is alcohol. It, there's no doubt about that. I mean, yeah. there's more people there's more people suffering from alcoholism than there are suffering from other crises. But you know, it just doesn't get the attention. Yeah, Darcy. Uh, yeah. Th- thanks a lot for for being so um, open and honest with us here, man. I mean, sharing your story today took took a lot of bravery. And I, I really appreciate the time that you gave us. No, oh, uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, and, and any chance I, I uh, get to uh, help uh, with uh, the just the under, education and understanding of of you know the process of addiction. It's not. It's I, I just wish everybody could understand that you know. I'm not just a fucking stupid junkie. You right, know? right. That we, there's things that lead us into these addictions. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 we're just trying to feel better. Right. And, you know, we're trying to make changes in our lives. And we're just making the wrong choices with them. And, right. Well, thanks. And, you know, it, <laughs> and yeah, I really appreciate you, you know, um, we didn't touch quite on everything in my life. But yeah, <laughs> that I, might take too long. Well, I think it would. I mean, we've been going for an hour and twenty minutes, but I think uh, I think maybe there's a, a future episode in our future, maybe that we could we could delve into something a little more deeper or focus on one area and and hammer hammer into it. Yeah, I would be very uh, interested in doing that too. Right on. Well, good luck uh, with your career. Um, there's no doubt that you're going to be one hell of an addictions worker, man, because. You you've had the lived experience, but now you've also got that that uh, knowledge that you that you learned from the textbooks and the professionals, and mirroring those two together, I think, is the perfect combination. You're going to be able to do a lot of good out there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I uh, have a hard time sometimes with compliments. Oh no! Take um, this one. Take it, man. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I, I, I do know that you, got a lot uh, to offer. you know I have a passion for it, and yep. and I believe that uh, people are receptive when we when I talk with them and and they know that I'm non-judgmental and that, that I'm you know understanding and exactly. that, you know I, I do realize that there's a wonderful person underneath that addiction right. they are not their addiction right alright man I'm going to leave it on that thanks for coming on the show you betcha you have a great day you too take care well I hope you enjoyed this episode of this say no know.org podcast Please head over to your social media pages and follow us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter handle is at SayNoOrg. Also, check out our website, www.saynoknow.org. And most importantly of all, please hit the subscribe button on wherever you're listening to this podcast. And tell all your friends and family, because we need all the support we can get. We're in this together. We're trying to make some positive changes in our community. And as far as we know, education, sharing stories is definitely the best way to do that. So catch you next time.